Hi everyone, welcome to the 15th and final episode of the Svarim Chatter series on Shopsite Tzvi. On this episode of the series, I was joined once again for the third time in the series by Professor Matt Goldish, and we discussed a number of things, mainly tying up some loose ends, including Sabatianism's effect on modernity and other various related um, topics. Uh, I would like to once again thank the corporate sponsor of the entire series, Glock Plumbing, for all your service needs, big or small in New Jersey, with a full service division from boiler changeouts, main sewer line snakeouts, camera ink main lines, to a simple faucet leak, Glock Plumbing Service Division has you covered. Give them a call, 732-523-1836, extension 1. Uh, I want to thank all the listeners for the feedback for the series and for everyone's you know comments and emails and and. And for listening more than anything, uh, they can first of all they can now be accessed on the new website farmchatter.com. There is a uh, tab there. You can the shop sites V series, and it is in order from one till will be to episode fifteen. So you can check them out. I hope there'll be more Sabathian related episodes in the future as well, just not part of the series. Um, and also, you know, if you enjoyed the series or you know, and have any comments. And I'm always happy to receive feedback. Please email me, svarimchatter at gmail.com. And if you have any other ideas for a new series, the series went over very well. People really enjoyed it. So if anyone has any other ideas for possible series or guests for a series or topics, please email me. And as always, if anybody would like to sponsor uh, a show or to just support the show, um, please email me, svarimchatter at gmail.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Sparm Chatter podcast and another episode in the Shop Size Fee series. I actually will term this one the finale episode, although there will be some more episodes related to Shop Size Fee and Sabathianism, but we'll call this the finale as we tie up some loose ends. And on this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined once again for the third time in this series by Professor Matt Goldish, who is the Samuel and Esther Melton Chair of History at The Ohio State University. And we will be covering, again, some final aspects of Sabathianism. So thank you, Professor Goldish, for joining me once again. Thank you. Okay, so let's start off with a question. I think we, we probably touched on it somewhat in the first two episodes we did together. But we, we discussed, obviously, people can listen back to the original episodes of Shabtitzvi until his conversion, and then afterwards until his death. And then a little bit, we discussed some of the figures after his death. But essentially, I guess, moving into the 18th century and I, whatever time period it is, what did it, what was really going on? Everybody knows of obviously there's the famous Iraq of Amdin and Minnesota Ibishitz, but there was many other from which Chagiz was going was going after others. There was there was a lot of heresy hunting, and there was clearly this this perceived or was this danger, this grave danger from this heresy um, of Sabatianism and Sabatian theology. So, what, what exactly? And I've got this question from listeners: What exactly was going on over here? So what's perceived as the danger uh, comes from two different directions, which are closely related to each other. Uh, one has to do with the Kabbalah of Nathan of Gaza and uh, Abraham Miguel Cardoso and uh, Avram Yachini, and the other theologians of the movement. Uh, and eventually uh, in the uh, 1710s, uh, the developments in that theology of Nehemiah Chayon and of Baruchia Russo, the, 
the uh, theology of the movement had been problematic from the very beginning, and especially this idea of Shabtai Tzvi, of mitzvah habab ha'avera, or the idea that uh, certain transgressions of halacha, of Jewish law, were appropriate and had to be committed. That idea is taken up by certain figures later on, and they run with it in a big way. So Gershom Sholom had sort of pointed out, and certainly others following him, that Kabbalah had always had a certain potential for heresy within it. Uh, and um, people today, I mean, let's face it, uh, in our world, uh, rationalism has lost out and Kabbalah has won. We, we like Kabbalah and uh, rationalism, Maimonidean rationalism. We, we still love the Rambam, but uh, that, that kind of thinking, people, people associate that with heresy and, and problems and rationalism. Is very, but Kabbalah, what could be wrong with Kabbalah? We love Kabbalah. Kabbalah, it's uh, right. It, it, the whole thing is a gesher because there is potential heresy and potential problems on both sides. And uh, Kabbalah, there had always been this potential, but it was never realized, certainly in as, as spectacular a way as it was in the Sabbatean movement after uh, Shabbatai's apostasy, after the death of Nathan of Gaza and Avram Yachini. In other words, really starting in the 1690s, uh, the later 1680s, 1690s, Sholem says 1700, but I think it's already before that, you start to see people who take the Kabbalistic ideas that are associated especially with the uh, idea of the mitzvah hababa avreira, the, the, the need for ritual antinomianism and antinomian acts, and um, the, uh, uh, the, the explanations for the apostasy of Shabtai Tzvi, which is a sort of accelerated version of explaining those antinomian acts, they take that and they push it to an extreme so that uh, some people uh, start uh, rejecting uh, various aspects of halacha. Baruch Russo uh, ends up teaching that uh, the fulfillment of halacha is, is its uh, abrogation, that the, the whole thing turns the whole thing on its head. Uh, Nehemiah Chayon uh, teaches a, a, a concept of three-part God. If that sounds familiar, it's because the guys down the street have that and may be familiar with that, right? Trinitarian doctrine. Uh, so now a, a lot of scholars, especially today, who study Sabbateanism focus entirely on that, on the on the uh, extreme versions uh, of Sabbatean theology and activities and actions. Uh, I think that that was a relatively small part of the overall world of believers during that time, but they're very exciting and colorful. So we, we get excited about them. But uh, th so that theology is, is one piece and obviously very closely related to it. And based on that is the antinomian actions of Shabbatai Tzvi, 
of uh, certain later Sabbateans where um, it starts out as uh, something like uh, eating uh, exactly a, a kezayis of, uh, of bread on Pesach, which nobody's doing for their enjoyment. It's doing it in imitation of Shabbatai Tzvi, who taught that certain specific transgressions fulfilled certain needs in the in the messianic age uh and in other cases uh right it started to it started to become more generalized so you start having people doing some much more serious uh wrote and the transgressions of of torah law more systematically um so it, it it really for a long time is just these the and 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 continues in many places either people remain extremely observant or they only do these small ritual transgressions that uh, that do not connect to a generalized antinomianism but you start to get people who who teach a much more generalized antinomianism and I'll give you an example from my favorite character uh, Shlomo Ailon the uh, the rabbi of uh, London and then Amsterdam for decades uh, at the end of the 17th, beginning of the 18th centuries, it seems uh, he, he uh, in the 1680s, apparently converted to Islam with the Dunma, with this group that, uh, in imitation of Shabtai Tzvi, converted to Islam and continued to be Sabbateans under, uh, it, in the guise of, of Muslims. Uh, so he apparently joined that group. And it seems that there weren't, uh, there were more than a few people who did what he did. He joined and he was with them for a while. I don't know, a matter of years, probably. And then he left and rejoined uh, the Jewish community. But there were rumors and apparently they were well-founded that while he was a member of this group, uh, the leaders of the Donme encouraged him or even... Uh, I don't know, pushed him uh, to uh, uh, trade wives with somebody else. Uh, so the wife that he came out with was not the same wife that he went in with. And uh, as uh, Rabbi Moshe Hajiz uh, points out in uh, Sheva Poshim, uh, he... Um, he was still with that woman. He he was uh, the rabbi of major Jewish communities, uh, and he was still married to the to somebody uh, whom right his divorce had not been proper, and his marriage to this woman hadn't been proper, and her divorce from her former husband. So you start to see, uh, and again, as I say, there's no particular reason to doubt this testimony. Uh, you start to see things like that showing up. So you have the theology on the one side right which is uh sometimes turning extreme and and very antithetical to traditional jewish ideas of any kind and then you also have the activities the practices where you sort of shift from these these minor uh acts of ritual antinomianism or even of people there remain many people who are strictly observant and all in every way uh you start to see people who go to an extreme of um non-observant sort of antinomian uh, acts so 
that is why uh, somebody like Hajiz or somebody like Rabbi Yaakov Emden is very, very nervous about these people because uh, they they seem to pose an enormous threat. And uh, if you can imagine it like this, you think of the Jewish community as uh, a big ball of uh, dough. I don't know. All it takes is a little yeast. All it takes is one or two people teaching heretical ideas and it spreads through the community and uh, the the antinomian uh, antinomianism spreads through the community. Essentially, that's what ended up happening in the 18th century with the Haskalah, right? Uh, especially in in Western and Central Europe. So they they had a, a real reason to worry. So essentially, when they're doing, especially the main two, like you said, Ramayish Chagiz and Yaakov Emden, when they're doing this McCarthyism, for lack of a better word, they're going after everybody. I mean. Is that always what they're accusing? One of these two things that you mentioned there, because when they're going after people that are uh, seem like Shemir Torah mitzvahs, they seem like big gedolim, Tamid chachamim, you know, wrote sforim. They seem like balei halacha. Everything seems okay, but are they trying to say, hey, in private, they're really doing these acts, or they really believe in this corrupt theology, or is there something different? Like not like you like you said, you have these radical elements. That's not at least in public what. Everyone that they accused of seem like, especially Yaakov Emden in his writings, seems to go after a lot of people and mention a lot of different things. So I think that for these two figures, right, Sasportas is in a different category because he's only busy with the Sabbateans at the height of the movement. After that, he sort of loses interest. But uh, Rabbi Moshe Hajiz and Rabbi Yaakov Emden, for them, I think it's like a low plug. In other words, they don't really, I think, make uh, distinctions between different types of Sabbateans. A, a Sabbatean is dangerous, uh, and in a way, they might be right, because you see people like uh, Chaim Malach, uh, who, who accompanies um, Rabbi Yehuda Chosid to Jerusalem, right, on that, that great uh, group expedition to Jerusalem in 1700. Uh, he starts out as a relative moderate. He's involved with uh, the Italian group of uh, Rabbi Avram Rovigo and, uh, and the Rabach. And then he goes further afield. He goes to the Ottoman Empire. He meets certain people. He meets Shmuel Primo and some of the more uh, extreme elements. And he turns from being uh, a moderate and even pietistic Sabbatean to being a radical uh, with some very wild ideas. So I think that they worry that anybody who's involved in this movement in any way at this point is uh, a potential dangerous element. So they go after all kinds of people. And uh, in many ways, uh, it's a very dangerous pursuit for them because uh, the rabbinic world doesn't want to keep bringing this up. Um, they may be willing to let people believe whatever it is they believe in secret and private. And uh, because the more you bring it up, the more you make it public, uh, the more the non-Jewish world sees the, the strange things that are going on in the Jewish community that are very suspicious and odd. 
the rabbis are embarrassed about all this because uh, aside from anything else, a shocking number of them were involved at the height of the movement uh, or even afterwards, and they don't want that exposed. There are leading rabbis uh, in all kinds of communities who continue to be Sabbateans, whether more secret or less secret. Look what happened to Rabbi Yaakov Emden. He went up against Rabbi Yonasan Ibeshitz, and he essentially lost. In other words, Rabbi Yonasan Ibeshitz had more power. He had more adherence. He had uh, he was in a strong rabbinic position, right? Of course, there's the whole thing about the the position of the rabbinate of Prague and so on. Rabbi Yonasan Ibeshitz basically outgunned Rabbi Yaakov Emden. Uh, it wasn't, I mean, I, I don't want to get into the question of who's right and wrong or, or whatever, but uh, just in sheer uh, terms of, uh, I hate to use the term, but almost power politics, Yaakov Emden was uh, steamrolled, right? And that, that, that happened to Hajiz a lot also in the, um, the Ramchal controversy. He, um, he, he had a lot of adherence outside Italy, who didn't know anything, who didn't know the Luzzato family, they didn't know anything about the Ramchal and so on. And uh, right, those the, the people inside Italy uh, just basically stonewalled him, most of them, with one or two exceptions, right? They held him out. Uh, his, his supporters were people uh, in, you know, Vilna and so on. Uh, but he, uh, right, he, the, the only people who would, um, uh, right, who, who would take on the task of this kind of heresy hunting are people who weren't at the center of the rabbinic world, if I could put it that way. Um, Rabbi Moshe Hajiz was, uh, despite who his father was, was quite marginal. And Rabbi Yaakov Emden, he, he, he got thrown out of various communities, one after the, another. He was willing to put his money where his mouth was, and, and uh, it did not go well for him uh, in terms of his uh, professional standing. So this whole thing, the heresy hunting, there's the question of uh, what exactly a Sabbatean is and uh, whether they all get thrown in the same basket. And then there's the question of how much do you want to risk by going after these people? And, and, then, and then is the underlying question, as you suggested, of let's say that nothing happens to somebody. Let's say you have a uh, Rabbi Shlomo Ayalon who goes through an entire very successful career, dies in his old age, uh, is as far as we can tell, and I think the evidence is pretty strong, is Sabbatean all the way through. Uh, who, who really cares? For, for me, I had an interesting experience. I have met two descendants of Rabbi Shlomo alone, one way or the other, uh, actually three. Uh, the fact that, they, that there are still descendants of his family who are Jewish in the uh, 20th, 21st century Suggests to me that mach I don't know. Like <laughs> uh, it, it, it's if if he believed whatever he believed, it doesn't seem to have um, you know sent his descendants into some kind of heretical purgatory. I don't know. 
I mean, I think that's the question that everyone's so curious about, right? Is that he, he like you're saying, he seemed Sabatian straight through, but yet he, on the other hand, he seemed to be standard. He wasn't like doing these mitzvah blah, 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 at least in public. He was showing Torah mitzvahs, right? He was, he was the rabbi of Amsterdam. He was giving, yeah. as far as we know, he was giving Pesachalacha. He was, he was the rabbi there in, in, a, in a, and Amsterdam at that time, this is from the most powerful, biggest communities in, in the Jewish world, right? And he's like, like you're saying, and he has Jewish descendants. I mean, we're not going to answer one with the other. It's just, I don't know. It's just interesting to, to, to think about, right? Yeah. So obviously there's a lot more to discuss on that question and we're not going to get there. So let's, let's move on to something else that you, you mentioned a few minutes ago that I want to pick up on is you mentioned the whole, you weren't exactly discussing this, but you mentioned the Haskalah. So, and, and then uh, emancipation and all everything that came with that. So what was, what was kind of did, did let's sort of did, did Sabatinoism have an effect on Ascala and what happened and then emancipation and everything that happened in Jewish community. And if so, what was that? So there's a famous thesis by Gershom Sholem in his first major article about Sabbateanism called Mitzvah Hababa Avera uh, that was published in the early 1930s, 33 or 34, and I think. And uh, he... Um, he makes this argument at the end of the article that Sabbateanism and especially Frankism, which he really conflated with Sabbateanism much more than people do now, that uh, these uh, movements or the Sabbatean movement fed more or less directly into uh, the Jewish Enlightenment, the Haskalah, the Aufklärung, and into reform. And the basis of that argument was that the Sabbatean, the Sabbateans had become antinomians. They rejected halacha. They flung off the uh, what what you would call the Ol Malchut Shamayim, the res- responsibility to uh, observe the commandments, and that that was something that was attractive to uh, certain. Uh, Jews who became the uh, Maskilim. And he points out one or two uh, individuals, especially a guy named Moshe Dabrushka, that he he says, here, you can see this in action with this guy. Um, He was uh, just, just, uh, just uh, totally rejected by the world of, uh, of, Jewish studies uh, for this thesis. Um, for a long time, Yaakov Katz went at him. Uh, Shmuel Versus, who was the great scholar of uh, Haskalah literature, wrote an entire book to refute this position uh, about the relationship between Sabbateanism and uh, Haskalah, which was, of course, right, very antithetical. Uh, and and various other people, right? They they all attacked Sholem. Uh, There's one guy who did not attack Sholem uh, in an article he wrote, which I have found very useful for understanding the situation. Hillel Levine of uh, Boston College uh, wrote a book about a Frankism as a cargo cult. So the cargo cult is a famous idea from anthropology based on uh, anthropological studies of South Seas islands in the Pacific, South, South Pacific islands, where I won't go into it, but the essential idea, essential idea is you have A causing B, 
the A, the cause goes away uh, and a different cause shows up, but B continues to be the goal, right? So in this case, uh, the idea that he's trying to bring across is that uh, the antinomianism of the Sabbateans was based on their perception of certain approaches within Kabbalah. And they become antinomians. Their descendants and the friends of their descendants, the uh, the, the, the Maskilim, continue to be interested in antinomianism and the rejection of halacha, uh, but it's no longer because of these uh, Sabbatean and Kabbalistic reasons. It's because of what we are familiar with, right? The the sort of uh, cultural and, uh, I don't know, whatever you would call it, historical rejection uh, of uh, Torah and the responsibility of the mitzvot. So his idea is almost like a, a cultural anthropological approach that you can't draw a straight line. It's not a straight line, but in the atmosphere of the 18th century, where many people were turning against the traditional understanding of Torah and the responsibility of the mitzvot already, that uh, Sabbateanism could be sort of fit into that nexus or that context. And um, maybe he's right. I mean, uh, something along those lines. In other words, I, I don't, I personally, I don't think that Sholem is entirely wrong. <laughs> I think he's mostly wrong, but uh, you, you can sort of see where the 18th century in, in uh, especially in Western and Central Europe is, is a very weird uh, kind of atmosphere. I mean, think about people like the uh, the Freemasons, right? The founders of Freemasonry were uh, leading scientists, uh, Newtonians, right? I always come back to Newton, right? Newtonians and and uh, members of the Royal Society and so on were among the founders of of Freemasonry. And yet Freemasonry is all mystical and magical and has all these symbols and all this uh, kind of uh, this kind of stuff. How do those things fit together? Well, in the early 18th century, they did fit together for people. Uh, from our world, uh, there's a figure and my friend Marsha Keith Shukard has done this incredible work on this. There's a figure named the Baal Shem of London. Rabbi Shmuel Falk, the Baal Shem of London. There recently uh, uh, a book uh, by Michal Aron, uh, material about him was published. So Falk was uh, named by Rabbi Yaakov Emden as a Sabbatean. Uh, he is considered one of the invisible superiors by the Freemasons. Um, He's he's referred to as Dr. Falk by learned Europeans all over the place. He's associated with Emanuel Swedenberg. Uh, this, this is a very strange world in which uh, kind of rationalist critique of uh, religious principles 
and uh, mysticism can somehow fit together and work together in ways that seem entirely incongruous to us. So <laughs> that's that's where the idea, though, that's where the idea comes from of the influence uh, of, of Sabbatinism on Haskalah and reform. That's it's all from a, a Sholom idea. Also, you, I, I should mention to give you a plug a little bit over here. You mentioned the uh, Newton. And for those that don't know, your first book is on Sir Isaac Newton called Judaism and the Theology of Sir Isaac Newton. If anybody wants to go broke and spend like $150 on a book, <laughs> it's a very expensive book. Uh, I think it's still available, right? It's just expensive. I, I think I only own one copy myself. I can't afford it. Yes. I'm on an educator's salary. So there is a, a book on Newton, if those want to know why you reference Newton over there. So, okay, so, that, so that's an interesting uh, tidbit. And another thing that I've been asked a lot, I don't think we'll get into a lot, but just to briefly touch on is the other, at that time also, 18th century, is uh, the, the Sabbatinism's effect on Hasidus, on Hasidism, the Baal Shem Tov, and is there any, any uh, real um, impact or connection? So... Uh, the work of Emmanuel Etkis is very helpful in understanding this situation. Uh, I will say that it's largely uh, similar to the relationship between Sabbateanism and Haskalah, which is there is a relationship and it's almost entirely negative. The, uh, the, the Hasidim, and uh, Etkis explains this situation. He points out the timing of certain moments in the, uh, the little we know of the history of the Baal Shem Tov, in relationship to the the Frankists, and he he uh, points out that that uh, the Baal Shem Tov was horrified by the Frankists and uh, really rejected everything about uh, anything that he knew to be Sabbateanism. Then, on the other hand, is the famous point that Sholem uh, brought up and and wrote about in a few places that. Uh, one of the late 17th century uh, Sabbateans from the uh, from Eastern Europe was uh, Heschel Tzoref, uh, who wrote a book called the Sefer HaTzoref, of which we have some fragments. Uh, some pieces of that book, through various odd ways, uh, made their way into the hands of the Baal Shem Tov, and he loved it. He thought that this was a holy and important book. It's mostly gematrios. It's all about uh, Shema, all about the Pasuk of Shema, but it involves a lot of who's, uh, who's Mashiach ben David, who's Mashiach ben Yosef, and so on. Uh, the, the Baal Shem Tov got his hands on this, this piece of this work, and he, he considered it a great Torah. And uh, famously, uh, somehow, that work and Heschel Tzoref, the author, became conflated with this um, mythical figure called Adam Balshem that was kind of a, 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 a kind of a revered figure in the circle of the Balshem Tov. So uh, this this material found its way, right? The Sabbatean material found its way into the hands of the Balshem Tov. But like much of the Sabbatean material of the 18th century, it was unrecognizable to most people as Sabbateanism. In other words, anybody could read it and have not an inkling that there was anything uh, Sabbatean about it unless they knew what to look for. Uh, and of course, they had the will to try and find it. 
that's what happened with Sefer Chemda Sayamim, for example, and uh, uh, lots of other uh, 18th century works. Some of them, it's more obvious. Some of it's it's more subtle. But uh, clearly, a lot of this material could be read without uh, somebody even realizing that it was Sabbatean, or even if they did, sort of the willing to ignore that because it was interesting and important Kabbalistic writing. A good place to look if listeners are interested is Batal Naor, who I had on. He, uh, in his post-Sabbatean Sabbateanism, his book, he has a lot of, he does discuss some, some Torah connections there with Hasidus and also a lot of these uh, someone sometimes tenuous um, connections and going through these various things that you wouldn't necessarily know to be uh, Sabbatean. So people can check that out. So another thing, one other thing about the Baal I know you had mentioned to me there's something about uh, former messiahs and the Baal Shem Tov maybe you also wanted to uh, mention. <laughs> yeah. So, so in some elited passages from uh, the Shibche Abesht, it appears that the Besht at some point tried to rescue the soul of Shabtai Tzvi. Shabtai Tzvi, on his part, uh, at, apparently at some point tried to rescue the soul of Jesus of Nazareth. So, what it seems to be uh, to me is that. Uh, the Mashiach, the Messiah, to be a successful Messiah, has to rescue everybody. He has to save everybody. That's his job as the Mashiach. Everybody's an Avaryan. Everybody's a sinner. Uh, and he has to rescue the worst of the worst. And for the Jews in the time of Shabtai Tzvi, that was Jesus of Nazareth, who's talked about in in both clandestine and recognized literature in some terrible ways. Uh, and, uh, well, if you're the Messiah, you, you, you'd better uh, be able to rescue him, uh, because otherwise, what kind of Messiah are you? I mean, it's easy to rescue Tzaddikim, but rescuing Jesus of Nazareth from uh, this pallet that he's on down in Ghanem, wow, that's, you know, and... Uh, and of course, Shabtai Tzvi shortly afterwards becomes somebody who's regarded in the Jewish world in kind of the same way. This uh, this horrible person whose evil is just beyond anything that anybody can imagine. Well, the Baal Shem Tov is going to try and rescue him. So as I told you earlier, the way that I regard it is like a, a, a toy that they used to have when I was a kid called a barrel of monkeys, where the monkeys had these arms that were sort of twisted into curves. And the trick was you you take one and you try to catch the arm of the next one. And with that one, try to catch the arm of the next one until you pull them all out. Well, that's what the Mashiach has to do. So each successive Mashiach is trying to rescue not only all the other Jews, but also all the, uh, as it were, failed messiahs of the past. That's the lineage that you have to pull out and save, uh, because uh, who knows who was and who wasn't uh, from the, especially in the Kabbalistic worldview, who knows who was and who wasn't part of the uh, soul family of the messiah and uh, had, uh, maybe sh should have been a successful messiah but wasn't because of some interference from who knows what got to save them all okay so another thing here and and, and for the listeners we're hopping around a couple different things because like i said i want to just tie up some loose ends some questions that i got and things that we kind of didn't get to that i think as far as i remember we didn't get to in the previous episodes 
Another one is, uh, so are there any minhagim and uh, practices that that either done today that have Septuagint origins or maybe things that, I don't know, any done like that started off their origins, I guess, to reject uh, Shab Saitzvi? So I don't know of any uh, minhagim that we have that are directly intended to reject Shab Saitzvi. I, I got to think about that more, but I, nothing came to mind when you asked me about that. But Salon Naor has two examples of minhagim that were associated by people in the 19th or 20th century uh, with, uh, with Sabbateanism, and the reasons are, are rather vague. The one that interested me is the, uh, the backwards Sadi uh, in, in Safrus, in, in uh, scribal writing, uh, in uh, Torah scrolls, and in uh, Mezuzot and uh, Tefillin. And the reason I was particularly interested in that is because my uh, my tefillin, for various um, unusual reasons, are uh, uh, what's called ksavari, which I believe has that backwards tzaddik. So I, I'm I'm now concerned about this, but uh, I, I I it was it was a little hard to follow the the reasons that people thought uh, this and the uh, Ribona Shalolam that's said in front of the Aron Kodesh on, on holidays were the two examples given by Na'or, like quite what the what the Sabbatean origins of those ideas were. I, I, I had some trouble with that. But I uh, myself um, saw uh, something more specific uh, when I was in the Esnoga in the great synagogue in Amsterdam uh, one time. Uh, so outside of Eretz Yisrael, uh, Jews normally do not say the Birkat Kohanim, the priestly blessing on a daily or a, a, a weekly basis. It's only said on holidays. Uh, at that synagogue, they still say it. I mean, I was only there on a Shabbat and they, they still did it. They, they did it on a regular Shabbat. Uh, and that was a minhag that was associated with Sabbateanism. And uh, Yaakov Sasportas, who had been a Rav in Amsterdam, uh, and at the time of the height of the movement was in Hamburg, and later was again in Amsterdam, eventually as the chief rabbi, he decried this practice. He said, you really, really have to stop that. The idea of doing that uh, more often than on the holidays, the times that all the communities do it, came from uh, the Sabbateans, and it has to stop. But apparently it didn't stop. <laughs> my my experience was that they still did it. Wow, okay, that's interesting to know. So or that's an interesting point. So I think two main final questions uh, up here. First of all, one I think is a bit of a heavy one is, you know, how, how has the view and or the conception of Mashiach today been impacted by the movement and by, by Shabbat I guess, I guess today and also what I would say throughout the century since, but I guess let's just say it as today, or you can touch on anything before as well. So anytime that something unusual happens in the Jewish world, theologically or practically, uh, unless it's in the direction of, um, well, even then, any any mystical movement, any uh, interesting uh, innovation, anything like that, 
there will immediately be people who will be uh, crying out that this is either Sabbateanism, which is uh, popping up again, or that this is the same as Sabbateanism. Look how similar it is. And because the Sabbatean movement had so many different aspects and pieces and different people, uh, members or, or participants writing and uh, different ideas, it's not hard to to sort of say, oh, this Hasidism or uh, this uh, mystical group or this person who is uh, making claims that seem to be leaning toward messianism. And of course, um, we know about um, this uh, syndrome, right? What they call the Jerusalem syndrome (laughs) of people popping up and claiming to be Mashiach. I lived among the, the the places that I lived. I grew up in Los Angeles, and then I lived for 10 years in Jerusalem. I think those are the two world headquarters of messiahs. They, uh, they just show up with incredible regularity at these two locations. Uh, I, I assume that there's an exchange program also so that they go back and forth. Uh, and any time that somebody uh, is taken as more than just a complete crank, uh, you know, and starts to develop a following, the first thing that people will say is it's it's the Sabbateans, it's the Shabtaim again. So you you it 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 has sensitized the Jewish world uh to the problematic aspects of messianism in a way that hadn't really existed before. In other words, before Shabtai Tzvi, um there were many Jewish messiahs. We know the Rambam warned people about them. Various people warned people about them, but it was always considered, uh, you know, maybe this is the one, maybe this is it. And it was a disappointment afterwards and uh, and so on. But it, it wasn't considered sort of um, existentially dangerous to the Jewish people. After the Sabbatean movement, uh, the, the dangers of both uh, radical Kabbalah and uh, and messianism became manifest, and and they they came to the forefront of of Jewish consciousness in a way that they're they're always there now. Okay, so I think the the real final question that I guess I'll leave you with for this episode is. Uh, something that I think after doing this whole series, and we've this is our third episode together, and I think listeners have asked me, and people are probably wondering, is I mean, why should I care? Is this just uh, historical? Like I mean, like any other history book, it's just it's another historical thing. But why why should we care about Shabtaut, Sabbatianism, or Mashiach or Mishichud? Why, why do we care? Why does anybody care about any of this? What's the is there an effect on from any of this? Why why should we care? I imagine that for people who don't study history and aren't interested in history every day must be an amazing new adventure wow here's something that's never happened before wait a corrupt politician you're telling me oh my goodness oh this guy claims to be the messiah holy cow he must be you you have to learn what's happened in the past to understand what's happening in the present everything about our world is shaped by what's happened in the past so Sabbateanism is a uh, is a very important example because we saw really in many ways uh, what Sabbateanism did. I think it it was not the watershed that that introduced uh, 
Judaism into the the modern world. It was not it was not the shift from the uh, medieval or early modern to the modern period in Jewish history. What it did is uh, how can I explain this? Um, did, you, did you ever paint? Did you ever paint a room? Did you ever with paint, right? So before you put on the final layer of paint, what you're supposed to do is uh, what's called a skim coat, right? It's a coat that you put over and it shows up where there are problems, where there are things in the, in the, the wall or the previous paint that, are, that you need to fix before you put on the final layer. The Sabbatean movement was kind of a skim coat for the Jewish community. It exposed the weakness of the institution of the rabbinate. It exposed some of the issues that are latent within Kabbalah that had never come out before, but were uh, there in in potential. It exposed uh, issues about the uh, the the anthropological, the sociological, the psychological issues within the Jewish community. Uh, and in some ways, even more broadly than that, you saw the potential for these crazy, uh, seemingly, I would have thought, impossible uh, fragmentary movements and, and uh, ideas popping up in the Jewish world uh, when the uh, infrastructure of Jewish ideas and Jewish belief and so on had been allowed to kind of um, ossify and weaken. So especially the weakness of the, of the rabbinate really came out with this movement. And it's really uh, worth it for Jews today to sort of see, well, here is what can, you're wondering what can happen if things go sideways in this or that in the Jewish world. Well, here's, here's what can happen. So basically, that's that's really, uh, you know, I want to thank you for joining me, you know, again, to talk about this for a third episode. I thank you for sticking with me for 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 three episodes. I'm sure the listeners are appreciative as well. And if anyone has any questions, I'm sure they can email you or just reach out to me and I can ask you. Yeah, go ahead. I want to add one more thing, which is several people asked me uh, about the Chida and his uh, seemingly... Um, he writes about people who were uh, Sabbateans and Sabbatean authors, and in some cases, important figures in the movement, without having anything to say about their Sabbatean ideas um, or in any negative comments about that. Uh, my teacher, Rabbi Schnorr from Los Angeles, wrote me about this and one or two other people. So uh, I want to say that if you're interested in that subject, um, Meir Benayahu and his book about Chida deals with this. I believe it's on pages 127 to maybe 135. Uh, he kind of addresses this. I am I am uh, in no position to address it myself, but I suggest looking over there. Okay, so so uh, that's great. And like I said, if people want, I'm, I'm sure it seems like people can email you if they want to with any questions on this. Right. I've told you everything I know or I I purport to know. So I, I may not be able to answer any further questions, but I can try. Or maybe maybe you can refer them to, like you just said, books or things that they can check out. I mean, that's also what I wanted to ask you just finally. I mean, 
is there I'll, I'll link just because you you came on you know a bunch of times i want to link again to your book on this even though that's not exactly about what we discussed here on this episode on the Sabathian prophets but and obviously Sholem, we've mentioned uh with for lack of a better word ad nauseum on this series right um his is a uh, big tome are there uh you know we mentioned i mentioned a lot of the other books are there any other books probably in hebrew like specifically talk about a lot of these questions i mean is are there um you yeah. know so Sholem, first of all, wrote a ton of things about this. There is uh, there there are the two volumes of his articles that are extremely valuable for all of these topics. Uh, there is all the work by Meir Benayahu, which is uh, focused in Sfunot uh, Gimel Dalid, right? That entire right. That's not that's not all. Um, uh, Benayahu, but that uh, Sfunot Gimel Dalid is is all about Sabbatinism, and Sfunot Yud Dalid uh, is all Mer Benayahu, and a lot of it is about this period. Uh, there is the book by uh, Ada Rappaport Albert about women in the Sabbatean movement, extremely important. The mixed multitude, uh, which is uh, Pavel Macheco's extremely important book about the Frankist movement. Uh, Cengiz Shishman's book about the uh, Donme and also Mark Baer's uh, work on the Donme. Um, and uh, I don't know, the rest, I, I'm sure I'm missing some, but uh, oh, and uh, Jakob Barnai's work. Uh, th- there's a lot more that's scattered all over the place. Um, oh, there's, there's also this uh, two volume, one second. Yes, Hachalom Ushvaro, right? Hatnu Ashatayit Vishluchoteha. So that's a two-volume uh, work that uh, was published at Magnus Press. Uh, but there's there's just much much more. There's there's a lot more in the volumes of uh, Daniel Abrams uh, journal Kabbalah. Uh, lots and lots of important material there. Uh, sometimes in, um, uh, I don't know, all over the place. Yeah, I'm sure there's dissertations and articles and things scattered everywhere that people can uh, right can check out. I have to especially mention uh, Noam Leffler uh, is uh, is writing incredible uh, work on the movement and um, very careful, very valuable work. Uh, Hadar Feldman uh, on the um, the Donme, super interesting work. So there are lots of young scholars uh, doing uh, amazing stuff. Um, I, yeah, I want to throw in. I mentioned that I had you know the previous episode of Tzal Naor and post-Sabatian Sabatianism. People yes. more textual analysis, and as well as he has a book under a pseudonym called Caught in the Crack on uh, interviews he conducted with Donme or people that are descended of Dunma. It's an interesting uh, book. I think he wrote it under like Ruvain Alport. I'm forgetting the name, but it's called Caught in the Crack. I can put the link. People can uh, again check it out or look at the Noor episodes. That's another one. So like you said, there's a, there's a lot of stuff all over the place. And yeah. hopefully this series was 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 comprehensive, but not not something that covered everything. I think that's impossible, certainly. So it just was a springboard. If anyone's interested in more, they're able to go from there to get more this series like i said it, it didn't cover everything it, it doesn't claim to it didn't and also i said even though i'm calling this the finale there will be more episodes about this 
that I hope to get to in the future. And uh, thank you, Professor Goldish, for joining me uh, for a third time on the series to discuss this. I, I really appreciate it. I'm honored. Thank you so much.